Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today, we have Scott DeMauro. Scott was a high school social studies teacher, and he is currently the first term president, a first term president at the Ohio Education Association. And uh, Scott, if I recall, you were vice president for a while before becoming president, correct? I was. Well, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Jack, I uh, was talking to a neighbor the other day, and he uh, was complaining that the neighbor uh, on the other side was cutting his grass, and, you know, coming in maybe two or three feet onto this guy's property, and was explaining to me about how adverse possession worked. <laughs> and I just found it hilarious. And fortunately, I have a good relationship with this guy and was able to tell him how uh, ignorant he was of how actually adverse possession works and that if he wanted to cut my entire yard, he could for the next 21 years and I would still own my property. But that brings me to Ohio legislators. We're here to uh, talk with Scott about maybe sending some of them back to school on some of these recent issues. Yeah, I'm with you. Why would you complain about somebody cutting your grass? <laughs> it just some people think they know more than others. And I always get a chuckle, and I'm sure you're polite with people that try to tell us the law. <laughs> no, I'm not so polite, but go ahead. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's uh, uh, telling teachers what to teach, how to teach, uh, and now how to defend and uh, possibly risk their lives for their students seems to be uh it seems to me that the legislators are getting a little out of their lane. Well, they're getting out of their lane in that they're not asking for professionals for advice on the subjects for which they propose legislation. It's clear, and and we've seen this in a number of situations. My favorite was, you know, years back, the Florida legislature precluded pediatricians from asking parents as part of the, you know, the well checks that the kids get if they had a gun in the house. And the reason was pediatricians would ask, hey, do you have cleansers? Do you have Clorox bleach? Do you have rat poison? Let's make sure we store that. So in the same vein, if you have a gun, you got to keep it locked. Well, the legislators figured out that that was some infringement on the Second Amendment, passed a statute, precluded pediatricians from having meaningful discussions about a danger. And of course, it had to work its way through the federal court system. The law was reversed. But where do they get these ideas? Well, one of the ideas they've come up with is to uh, arm teachers in schools. And if that wasn't um, bad enough, in a lot of people's opinion, uh, they decided that they would decrease the hours of training for uh, teachers to bring their guns to school. And I saw a quote from um, the, uh, the lady that is going to uh, develop the curriculum. And she said, when you need to act, you can only perform as well as you've been trained. Now that was Mary Davis, and she was talking to 
the Attorney General's office when she took over OPADA. And as you recall, OPADA is the training academy for police officers. Right. So according to her, and I would tend to agree with the sentiments that you, um, when you need to act, you can only perform as well as you've been trained. Scott, it doesn't seem like our teachers are going to be trained very well with the passage of this new bill. No, there, there is so much irony in that anecdote that you just shared about the person now in charge of training teachers when the legislature passed House Bill 99, which sets the minimum state standard at 24 hours of training. Um, OPADA, the, the, you know, the Ohio Peace Officer Training Academy, when Mike DeWine was the attorney general, recommended 150 hours as the standard. And like on so many things, you know, Mike DeWine now is not willing to stand up for the things that he knew and believed was right uh, before, just like in the aftermath of the Dayton massacre, when he was calling for common sense gun safety laws like red flags and, and expanded background checks. Now he's caved to extremists in his party and, and you get House Bill 99. So, um, and also just for comparison's sake, Jackie, we're just referencing Florida. Florida is one of the states that has laws on the books that allow school districts to authorize their employees to carry weapons. The standard in Florida is, I believe, 132 hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. So. Um, not exactly, you know, a progressive state uh, these days. So it is absolutely perplexing, and I think you you hit the nail on the head earlier uh, in describing what is going through the minds of educators when legislators make laws about education without listening to the voices of people who have the day-to-day -day responsibility of, of supporting and serving students in the classroom. They didn't listen to us. They didn't listen to educators from across the state. When they passed this bill, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of people that were lined up providing opposition testimony. And you know who else was with us? The law enforcement community and the Fraternal Order of Police. And you know that didn't matter. Uh, there, there was this idea that we needed to do something. We needed a quick fix after the Uvalde uh, tragedy, and this was the approach that they took. Jack and I were trying to um, figure out who would be um, an opponent or a, a, who would be for such a bill, who was pushing it through the legislature. Was there any one group or was it a, a certain mindset of legislatures? There was, and if, again, if you would go back and look at the testimony that was offered originally in the House and then, and then later uh, when this bill was rushed through the Senate uh, and, and shortly before it was signed into law, um, educators, concerned parents, law enforcement, all lined up uh, in opposition. There was really only one significant group that was actively supporting the bill, and it was the Buckeye Firearms Association. And it just so happens that they provide a 20-hour training course that they shop around to school districts. And so there was, and, and, I, and I'm not questioning, I guess, their commitment to their cause. They really believe that the solution to all of our problems is to put more guns out there. But um, they also have a self, vested self-interest in, in getting this legislation passed. 
Is it law now, or is uh, has DeWine signed it? It was signed into law. It is uh, now into now in effect. You have the uh, Ohio Department of Public Safety that established a special office to oversee uh, what's going on here. It's also interesting that that in the final version of the legislation, uh, it also sets up regional oversight groups that are quasi-public, quasi-private entities. And it just so happens that the state senator who moved this bill and, and had the substitute final version of the bill uh, go through his committee, Senator Frank Hoagland, uh, owns uh, a company that provides this kind of training and oversight. Am I interrupting you there? No, no. I just uh, you're you're showing me that you're surprised, but you're mockingly <laughs> surprised by that. <laughs> Let me be real clear: there were sufficient entities testifying in opposition to this bill before it was signed. Yes. So it's really no different than when we have when we had the bills to re- remove the requirement for a permit to carry concealed. All the law enforcement agencies criticized it. And you would think that legislators would say, gee, we got to listen to the law enforcement professionals. Same thing here. They do what they want to do, irrespective of what the pros are telling them. Absolutely. This is, to me, um, uh, if not a little, a lot different than uh, the legislators dictating curriculum in the classroom. This is, to me, uh, outside of that, um, but what was uh, OEA's uh, opposition to teachers who have uh, concealed carries, or you know, at the time, or or wanted to carry a gun? What was the objection to that? Well, there there are several things uh, involved in this. One, fundamentally, we have had a position for a long time opposing the idea of of saddling educators who have the primary responsibility of educating children with a dual responsibility of also serving as armed security guards. There is enough on teachers' plates. And by the way, this isn't just teachers. This is also potentially principals, custodians, cafeteria workers, bus drivers, you know, anyone that a school board might choose to authorize to carry weapons. You know, we just, we just, think that there is enough uh, for our members to focus on in terms of, of meeting the needs of their students that asking them to do this, this uh, take on this additional responsibility just wasn't the right thing or a responsible thing to do. We also recognized, and, and again, House Bill 99 didn't legalize the, the practice of school boards authorizing employees to carry weapons. That happened in legislation several general assemblies ago. But what it did is it gutted the training requirements because there was a lawsuit uh, in the aftermath of the Madison local school district in Butler County passing a policy like this. And they basically said, we're just going to require 20 hours and, and local parents got together, they organized, and they said there's nothing, absolutely nothing in the law that says that anyone can be authorized unless they are a peace officer. And peace officer training requires 700 hours, and the Supreme Court agreed. So it was getting around that Supreme Court decision and essentially opening the door back up by removing any meaningful training requirements. So that was that was our concern. It's like, if you are going to do it, let's make sure that people are, are appropriately trained. And then we also had concerns about the whole secrecy 
you know, behind these policies. Uh, we asked for, but we're not successful in getting an amendment to the bill to clarify that there needs to be public notice when a school district passes a policy like this and that on an annual basis that communication needs to go to parents, it needs to go to people in the communities, it needs to be prominently displayed on the website. And again, we're not talking about identifying individuals who are authorized carry weapons. We're just saying as a parent, I would think that I have a right to know if my my child's teacher could possibly be carrying a weapon. And that notification requirement is pretty murky. And right now there is no uh, clearinghouse of, of school districts, you know, that you can go and, and go to the Department of Education or, or Department of Public Safety website and say what, what districts authorize this. Uh, the media has been going district by district by district to ask that question. I have a uh, daughter, Jack knows, that is a teacher in Arizona. And so I've been running by her, you know, the fact we're having the podcast, Scott having you on and getting her ideas. And she has a concealed carry permit and um, her husband's into guns. And she made a couple of interesting points. Uh, she, like most of the people I talk to, are against more guns in schools. But she uh, was telling me that, you know, when you think of all the schools in the country, hundreds of thousands, if not a million, I don't know how many schools there are, the incidents are, are really, the, the risk is really small. She thinks that what would happen, it'd be less likely for her to shoot an intruder than for her gun to be stolen, for there to be an accidental shooting, uh, for any number of other things that would happen that happens when you have a gun around. And she said, that's my big concern. She says, it seems to be over, you know, the top to arm teachers when the chance of it happening at our school is pretty slim. Um, what's your, your thought on that? No, I, I mean, the statistics, as, as horrific as these mass school shootings have been. And, and it is true that the frequency is, is far greater than it used to be. You know, when you go back from Columbine, you know, through Uvalde, um, you know, the, this, it's, it's terrible. But statistically, it's extremely unlikely that there's gonna be an outside intruder coming into a school and targeting students or staff. If that happens, there's the question of who are the best people to be able to respond to that situation. Uh, minimally trained teachers who have other responsibilities that they are primarily you know, focusing on, who might have a sidearm or might have access to a gun safe somewhere to, to respond, or fully trained law enforcement. And by the way, we also know from some of these instances that even those people who are fully trained haven't been able to respond effectively to prevent these tragedies from happening. And of course, there's all kinds of scrutiny around the police in Parkland and, the, and you know, people involved in, in Uvalde. But if, but if you can't count on them, what makes you think that an educator who has next to no training is gonna do better? And then layer on top of that, in one of these situations, you have somebody coming in with an AR-15 that is designed for maximum destruction and, and maximum loss of life against somebody who has a sidearm 
You know, it's not it's not a it's fair not fight. a fair fight. Your daughter's point, though, I think is is probably on a practical level. You know, really the 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 probably more salient one, and that is, anytime you introduce more guns into a situation, you increase the risk that something tragic is going to happen. And we and we saw just here in Ohio a couple of years ago, I believe it was in Morrow County, north of Columbus. There was a school employee who was authorized to carry a weapon who had it in her office. Uh, she had two young children. I think I think at least one of them was a relative, but two young children. She apparently forgot about the gun being in her office. She left. The kids got a hold of the gun. Thankfully, the gun didn't go off. But you think about what could have happened in that situation. And so accidental discharge, we, we, we've mm-hmm. heard stories about a teacher with a gun in a classroom accidentally shot it into the ceiling. I mean, th- these kinds of things can happen. Um, let's let's leave it up to the people that are trained to provide that kind of protection. Were you privy to some of the testimony that went on during these hearings? Yeah, I, I gave testimony and, and heard testimony from both sides. The reason I ask is when Gonzo and I talk about this, I like to refer to a shooting in this situation, a defensive shooting, as combat. Because I, it is combat. We try to, oh, what's the word? I'm, I can't downplay the seriousness by just calling it a shooting, but it's combat, right? Adrenaline is up, anxiety is up, there's fear, quick decisions like you've never had to make before. Is there ever, ever a conversation with the legislators about you're asking people to go into combat who aren't trained for it? Do they ever use that thought process? Yeah, I don't know if uh, if I heard anybody make that particular argument, but I think you do make a, a really strong point there. Here's a point that Gonzo and I talked about that doesn't seem to come up. Now, either, I, I, I gotta believe it exists, but teachers face the potential of liability here. So if you shoot a child or if you shoot a teacher, you're liable for negligence, just like every police officer who gets involved in a shooting, unless it's cut and dried self-defense, and few of those are, he's liable for criminal offense. Has anybody talked about that? Do, have any, has anybody thought about teachers being liable for shooting the wrong person? Well, it was interesting, during the debate on the floor, I believe it was during House floor debate, uh, the sponsor of the bill was asked that very question and he was not able to answer the question. He said, well, that's not the subject of this bill. <laughs> well, well I, think it's, I think it's important for <laughs> educators to understand that there are significant limits to their protection when it comes to liability from negligence uh, from mishandling, you know, their gun from from being caught in a combat situation and and uh, look, it's pretty simple. Happens. It's yeah. pretty simple. If cops are held liable, teachers are going to be held liable. I think they're going to have to give them immunity to some extent. But um, what I was reading, as far as you know, the liability, uh, how do you get insurance for that? And um, the prediction is is that the school boards, insurance companies are going to exclude these types of incidents from coverage. So now you've got a teacher that's just out there on an island with no protection uh, if they make a mistake with a firearm. And, um, you know, that would be a big concern if I was in that profession, to to not have any backing at all if if something goes wrong. And to me, something's going to go wrong. We know that. 
Our union provides a million dollars in liability coverage uh, mm-hmm. for our members as, as you know, one of the, the benefits of, of being a union member. And in talking with our legal team, they have made it clear that if you voluntarily choose to take on this responsibility, you are not covered. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. And you know, back to some of my, my daughter's other comments, um, uh, on the other side of the, the issue, she said there are students in her class that hunt, that they like and they're into guns. Some of them are in like ROTC programs. And she thinks that they would be a better source of <laughs> entering into combat than she would if she was in the classroom uh she says you know it it, it, as much sense as it makes uh for me to carry a gun she goes it it actually makes more sense for some of my seniors to carry guns because they would be better at it than i would um i please don't give legislators (laughs) any more ideas in this regard, John, yeah, so is, is, this where, is this where I say, can we take a time out? Yeah. Cut that last, <laughs> cut that last line. <laughs> so when Johnny leaves the house, his mother says, don't forget your lunch and here's your Glock. <laughs> is that how that works? Well, the, 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 the comment I liked most from her was, um, you know, every day she is concerned about what she wears to school, like most people and, and, and a lot of women. She's like, you know, where am I going to carry my gun? I wear a dress to school every day. And, uh, you know, do I have a, a holster on my ankle? And she just, you know, from a practical matter, she thinks it's such a dumb idea. Um, my other uh, resource, anecdotal resource, was uh, a client of mine that uh, works at the school lunch, serving lunches. Now, she could carry potentially under this bill, right? If, if her school board yeah. chooses to authorize her to do that. She just was incredulous, really. I'm literally handing lunch to kids. I'm going to carry a gun in school. Uh, she just thought it was was just kind of ridiculous in concept. I, I hope and I pray that the uh, unintended consequences of this aren't, aren't as serious as they probably could be. I have an idea. I think the bill should be amended. And it should read, as soon as the legislators become responsible for the maintenance and cleaning of the state house, then we can ask teachers to t- take up the role of self-defense. I mean, that makes as much sense, right? It's, it, it, I, I think you're onto something there. I, I, I'll just say there, there are a couple of arguments that we often hear from uh, supporters of this. One is you, you see this happening in... Or, or where where superintendents or school boards uh, are considering this, and so far, in the relatively small number of districts that have implemented these kinds of policies, they've been in rural communities, and the argument is always response time from law enforcement is too long uh, to be able to trust that that in an armed intruder situation that you're going to have your your kids protected. I want to lift up, you know, one of our local associations in rural Western Ohio uh, that a few years ago when their school board was considering adopting a armed teacher policy, they organized with the school board and with the local community to have a fully trained school resource officer, one, a city police officer for the, the one building, and the other uh, deputy sheriff for the other building uh, to serve in, in that role. And again, if a local community believes that armed protection 
is necessary. And again, that's a that's a local decision. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's you know arguments for either side of that. Uh, at least make sure that the people who are pro- providing that protection have that as their job. Uh, make sure that it's clear what their roles are and are not. We don't want to turn schools into um, prisons. You know, we don't we don't want to you know <laughs> we don't want to harden schools in in that way. Um, but the the barrier is usually funding. And so, if the state really cares about this, then how about the state step up and ensure that any district that needs to enter into a partnership with their local law enforcement or hire fully trained school resource officers has the resources to do that and stop passing the buck on to teachers. That bill reminds me of the bill that was passed that the schools now need to teach the three founding documents. Remember I told you I met that legislator that that introduced that bill what did he say (laughs) well i was just asking him about you know uh, whether he knew what the first 10 amendments were to the united states constitution since he now wants all school children to learn these founding documents and he got about three of them right okay (laughs) well 616 says that it's unlawful to teach use etc etc inherently racist concepts well i'm okay with that but let's see how it defines inherently racial concepts. It defines them as critical race theory. Critical race theory was a an idea spawned by a lawyer in the 1970s, Derrick Bell, to explain why racism persisted even after we had the equal rights laws passed. And then it says the 1619 Project. Well, that explains what a fundamental role slavery had in the nation. And then it says diversity, equity, and inclusion learning outcomes. That's inherently racist. So my first thought is, did the person who drafted this, well, it was certainly drafted by the Legislative Service Committee, but or commission, I suppose it is, but did this legislator who's sponsoring it ever sit down to think about what these words mean? Because those are not inherently racist concepts. Those are theories that are designed to explain why we are in the situation we are in and the legislator legislature legislature i always have a tough time with that word wants to ban these concepts help me with this scott well it's funny i i've always struggled with the concept of gaslighting but i think what you just read is like if you look up gaslighting in the dictionary that's exactly what it is you know um I'm not racist, you're racist, you know, and, and it, is, it is willfully disregarding some of the basic truths about our history and about our society. And uh, this is driven, and by the way, it wasn't the legislative, I mean, the Legislative Service Commission put it into bill form, uh, but it wasn't the LSE, it wasn't these particular sponsors. This is model legislation that is being introduced in state after state after state as part of a coordinated effort to use education as a wedge issue to score political points going into the midterm elections and then going into into 2024. It is all about instilling fear. It is all about uh, using the politics of resentment. Uh, It is all about uh, basically uh, tapping into 
uh, people's insecurities and perpetuating a narrative based on nothing that's actually happening in schools uh, as a way to further divide the country. And the people that are being caught in the crossfire of this effort are our educators and our students. Jack and I were talking about this um, organization, ALEC, and um, my wife, who was uh, in, in the State House for a number of years, uh, had gone to those conferences at times. And it is, you know, uh, hosted uh, for conservative politicians from around the country, and they walk out of there with their model bills to take back home, and it's... Um, uh, an incredibly decisive, d- divisive um, organization, uh, but powerful. And uh, that doesn't surprise me at all that this would have come out of there. I actually was wondering if the the uh, gun laws are, are coming out of that organization. I couldn't find anything on its l- website. Well, do we know if this legislation came out of ALEC? I don't know that this specifically was ALEC, uh, but... Uh Christopher Rufo, you might have heard about. The Manhattan uh, Institute. Yeah, so that, so that's where a lot of this, uh, you know, so-called anti-CRT stuff is, mm-hmm. is, uh, is emanating from. But, it, but it, you know, it was interesting the day this bill was introduced. Of course, it got a lot of attention because there are elements of this bill that, that get at the, the divisive concepts issues, uh, you know, as as bizarrely defined as they are in this bill. Uh, And then there's other parts of the bill that get at, uh, you can't talk about gender issues. Uh, And that's, you know, very much modeled after the so-called don't say gay bill uh, that passed in Florida and got all kinds of attention. And of course, Ron DeSantis is using it as the basis for, you know, mounting his, you know, national political profile. Right. Um, But the day that bill was introduced, the the sponsors were, state rep named Mike Loichek from the Youngstown area and Jean Schmidt, former congresswoman from Southwest Ohio. And reporters tried to stop them and just ask them, like, can, can you answer some questions about the bill? There was this famous video that was all over Twitter that day uh, showing Representative Schmidt literally running away from reporters because she wasn't willing to answer questions and I fully suspect she wasn't willing to answer questions because she had no idea what was in the bill. By the way, we should point out what ALEC stands for, which is American Legislative Exchange Council. 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 Yeah. And they, I looked at the website the other day. It promotes itself as being nonpartisan. Well, it may not be directly related to any political party, but it's got an agenda. It does. But, uh, you know, back to your. Um Back to your thoughts on when you read the bill and you go to the definition section. I had a uh, one of my favorite law professors back in the day taught us that you always read the definitions of any statute because that's where everything happens. The way that something is defined, then you know, uh, is the way that the bill would then have that the consequences of the bill are dictated by its definition. And Jack, I, I, there was one thing that you, I think you started to read the definition, but there's something else that's in there. And it's like, and anything else that the State Board of Education Def- deems to be a divisive concept. You're right, I did overlook that. And that's a, that could swallow everything. Right. What's interesting is that 
the legislature is trying to promote not speaking of subjects that are divisive. Okay, I get that. But the things that it lists are not divisive. They explain a problem. And so it's kind of ironic that they are suppressing education in the name of not being divisive. I think that's divisive. It is. And, and so we have problems with this on so many levels. Uh, but fundamentally, this is about suppressing honesty in education. And it is hamstringing educators, uh, essentially instilling fear in educators uh, so that they don't have the freedom to teach and give their students the freedom to learn a complete and honest education in the way that educators themselves were trained and hired to do. Uh, our teachers across the, the state, they teach the state standards. They teach the board adopted curriculum uh, in their schools. They teach uh, what the community has set up as, as the, the expectations for learning in our schools. Um, and, and you hear the word indoctrination that gets thrown around this is what exactly this bill is intended to do. It's intended to indoctrinate our students on an ideology that matches the ideology of the people that wrote this law. You know, I, uh, I went to Notre Dame, and when I went to Notre Dame, the president was Father Ted Hesburgh, who was a giant of a man. And as Catholic as that institution was, he had this very strong policy of being open to both sides of the issue. Something like this would have just, I'm sure if he were able to read this, he'd be rolling in his grave because he understood how important it was to hear both sides of an issue. And, you know, if, if you don't listen to critical race theory or if you don't listen to the 1619 Project, you're missing an important, pri an important part of American history. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll point out, and this is said a lot, that that critical race theory is not in the K-12 curriculum. It is something that you're probably more familiar with from law school, uh, that my daughter, who was a sociology major in college, you know, at Ohio University might be familiar with in that context. So, so again, it's a, it is a uh, bogeyman in this, in this whole thing. But I'll tell you, this is very personal to me. Uh, as someone who went into social studies education, and this is my 32nd year uh, in teaching. And again, I'm not actively in the classroom right now, but I still consider myself a teacher and always will. I did that. I made that choice to go into education because I wanted my students to have the critical thinking, problem-solving, decision-making skills in order to be effective citizens. That's my whole purpose for being an educator. And that means teaching multiple sides, perspectives on issues. That means helping students discern reliable from unreliable sources of information. That, that's helping students kind of really understand their own belief systems and then be able to support that and, and, and be consistent in their, in their logic and their thinking. I was never steering anybody any particular direction except learn to think for yourself and learn to make decisions based on the facts. You know. Um, this is so antithetical to that. And, and the other thing is, as a teacher of history and government, I wanted my students, especially in teaching about American history, to understand the mistakes of our past so that 
we as a nation can learn from them and do better. That is fundamental aspect of our history. I think one of the things that, that as Americans we should be proud of, that we have seen this, you know, the, the arc of history bends towards ju- justice. And this, this is just counter to all of that, you know? And, and I want, I, just like I want students to learn from their own mistakes to do, to do better, you know, we, collectively we need to be doing that too. When uh, this type of law is passed, uh, as a practical matter, do these school boards then go back through all the curriculum to make sure that it's now meeting the new standards? And what kind of, you know, a huge job that must be? It's uh, still unclear. And there have been about a dozen states that have seen similar pieces of legislation that have passed. But from what I've heard so far, and this is true even in Ohio, that the real, uh, the insidious impact of this legislation is the culture of fear that it creates. And even by it being introduced, even if this bill doesn't get passed, there are teachers who are gonna be fearful for their license, for their job, for having to find themselves on the six o'clock news because someone's gonna misconstrue something about what they do in the classroom. And so the answer is, I'm not gonna do anything that might offend anybody at any time. Talk about a way to kill learning. That's the way to do it. Have your lawyers ever raised the issue that maybe this is a First Amendment problem? It's inter- That's an interesting question and I think there's um, and, I, and I say that because it was the First Amendment, at least in part, that killed that Florida statute that precluded pediatricians from asking about guns. Right. There, there are First Amendment limitations on public employees in terms of, of uh, in, the, in the course of exercising their job responsibilities that, um, you know, I think make this a little bit more challenging than if you were to essentially pass a bill saying that no one can talk about these issues. They're saying a, a, an educator in a public school can't, can't do these things. And uh, now, would I love to see that tested? Yeah, we'll see. But uh, I also wonder, you know, who's going to be out there who's willing to put themselves on the line to test that? Well, you've, you've given me an insight to the law that I wasn't aware of. I wasn't thinking there was a, an additional burden for public employees. What do you think, Jack? I think uh, somebody's got to go to the legislators and tell them to use common sense when they are passing provocative laws. Put them in the corner until they uh, <laughs> in a timeout. So, uh, Scott, we appreciate you coming in and talking to us uh, about these issues. They're very important. And, you know, I think almost everybody remembers uh, their teachers, whether it's, um, you know, grade school, high school college and and certainly um, I had so much respect for my law professors that taught me how to be a good lawyer and a good person too that um, that we're proud of our teachers I'm proud of my daughter and I'm glad that uh, common sense is still a part of the profession and I wish that we could say that about all professions but again thank you for your time thank you very much I've really enjoyed the conversation I enjoyed it as well 
Our thanks to WOSU and our sound engineer, Eric French. If you like what you've heard today, tell a friend. We want this to be more than just us. We'd like it to be all of us. We'll be back in a few weeks with another important social justice issue. Until then, so long.